Truth Espresso, episode 162. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hello, Truth Espresso friends, family, and lurkers alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, uh, coming at you with another episode, but this one is going to be a special treat. I have a special guest by the name of Pastor Scott Disler, and um, I hope that the, with this conversation, you'll get to know him a little bit as I've felt like I'm getting to know him a little bit by reading his book, which is what we're going to talk about this episode. Uh, pastor Scott Disler is the lead pastor at Gaylord E-Free Church. It's a multi-campus church with campuses in Gaylord and South Michigan. He holds a pastoral ministries degree and a master's in religion from Liberty University, um, that's the home of the late great Dr. Jerry Falwell. And Pastor Scott has served a role of pastor in Ohio, in Indiana, and in Pennsylvania, and now in Michigan at the church he now pastors. Scott is the author of the book, The Cave When Ministry Becomes Misery. So, uh, Pastor Scott Disler, welcome to Truth Espresso. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and so, um, Pastor Scott, before we get into your uh, book a little bit, could you give um, a brief testimony of how you came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and, and how you felt called into pastoral ministry? Oh, I'd love to. Um, you know, I grew up in a Christian family. My grandpa was a pastor. And uh, so even as a child, um, I was in church. We were the type of family, if the doors were open, we were in church. Mm -hmm. But because my dad was also the church custodian, even when the doors were closed, we were in <laughs> church. And uh, so church was a big part of my life. I started when I was uh, five years old, going every Tuesday afternoon to a good news club taught by my aunt through Child Evangelism Fellowship. I Listen, I went every single week. I went primarily for the punch and cookies, but every single week I would hear my aunt tell the story of Jesus dying for my sins, rising from the dead, and how we could be forgiven if we would receive Christ into our life. And, and I heard that story multiple times to the point that even at age five, I think I could have told the story every bit as good as my aunt did. But one particular afternoon, I remember sitting in that living room in that house and it dawned on me. I knew the story, but I had never personally received Christ. And that afternoon with my aunt on the front steps of that house, I invited Jesus Christ into my life. And uh, that was the really beginning of my spiritual journey. And um, when I was young, I was already feeling a call to full-time ministry. Um, when I was in junior high school and high school, I used to every Sunday morning as I got ready for church, on a little black and white TV in my bedroom, watched Jerry Falwell and the old time gospel hour. And, and I wanted to be like Jerry Falwell. And uh, my junior year of high school, 
my pastor asked me to preach at our Easter sunrise service. I'd like to say it's because he saw something in me, but I think it's because I was dating his daughter at the time. But nonetheless, <laughs> I preached that morning, saw people come to know Jesus. And from that moment on, there was nothing else in this world I wanted to do but preach. And so when I heard that uh, Dr. Falwell had a college in Virginia, my search for a college ended. I ended up there for four years and then started in ministry while I got my master's degree. Oh, cool. It sounds like a, a really neat testimony and how God uniquely calls um, every one of us to both to faith and also ultimately to some form of, of ministry. And I like the story about being called uh preaching the Easter service and you're dating the pastor's daughter. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I could use anything. <laughs> yeah. Even the dating sphere. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're, you're a pastor of um, an e-free church. Um, yeah. Can you explain what an e-free church is? I've, I've heard it before. Sure. Is it kind of like a, an independent Baptist church uh, well, in probably in theology, but Evangelical Free is part of the, what's called the EFCA, the Evangelical Free Churches of America. And uh, it's a denomination that kind of got put on the map when Chuck Swindoll was at the height of his radio ministry because he pastored a free church in California at the time. And so that's the, the denomination is the Evangelical Free Churches of America. Um, for short, we just call it E-Free. It's a lot easier to say. Although sometimes people think that means we don't pass the offering plate. But anyway, E-Free <laughs> Church is what we go by. <laughs> cool. Yeah. It's a, I know I've been to like some Calvary chapels, which are non-denominational. Maybe right. there's some similarity there, but yeah. There is. And, and the EFCA, though, though we're part of a denomination, every church is autonomous. Mm -hmm. So we make our own decisions, have our own leadership structures, uh, but we are part of a denomination, albeit loosely. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. So let's get to your uh, book. Uh, it's called The Cave, When Ministry Becomes Misery. And uh, you talk about uh, the story of Elijah and his ups and downs, and you relate that to uh, ministry experience, you know, likely the experience, uh, uh, I mean, of your experience, likely the experience of many other ministers, that they can find themselves in this kind of experience. And um, can you uh, talk a little bit, like, what's the, the main thrust of your book about, like, what is this... Uh, cave, like how do you uh, apply this cave and the story of Elijah to mm -hmm. a minister's experience with uh, how I could relate to Elijah's ups and downs there? Exactly. And I think probably anybody who's been in ministry long enough uh, has experienced the cave to some degree and has the scars to show for it. For me, um, I was pastoring a church in Pennsylvania. I had been pastoring for several years in Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania. And when I first went there, things were going great. Uh, in the first five years, the church tripled in size from 500 to 1500. We were seeing so many people come to Jesus. And then year number six, we hit a buzzsaw. I should say I hit a buzzsaw. And that was with the elder chairman of the church, who was without doubt the most influential layperson in the church as well. And over the first five years, he'd been my biggest cheerleader. 
but something happened. And frankly, to this day, I can't put my finger on exactly what it was that turned him against me. Mm. And, uh, and that started a process of a lot of secret meetings and meetings behind my back. And I, I would say untruths. And, and as all of that was happening, I found myself retreating into what I called the cave. It's that place where ministry becomes misery. And suddenly the thing that I found the most joy in my life in ministering, it was a misery. I had to make myself do it because of all that was going on. And, and I'm not the first person to find that cave. Elijah did. And if you go back and you look at the story in First Kings, you discover that here's Elijah. And in one chapter, he's on top of Mount Carmel calling down fire from God, incredible victory. And the very next chapter, he's in a cave saying, God, just kill me, just kill me. And uh, he found the cave. And for him, it was because as well, one person opposed him. Her name was Jezebel. So the cave is that place you end up retreating into when you're hurt by someone or betrayed by someone. And in ministry, the result is your ministry becomes misery. And that's what I experienced in my life. Yeah, that's uh, cool. And, you and you know, when I've heard sermons about um, Elijah and the, the Mount Carmel uh, standoff there, almost usually I'd hear a sermon about that. And a separate sermon about the cave experience, but then, you know, sometimes I never thought of how they how they get put together and and realize just how you know quickly things went from you know the the euphoria, the victory, the success, you know, even seeing the work of God amazingly done, how God performed a spectacular miracle, and then the next day, basically, you know, to find uh, you're wishing God to just end it all, take your life, you know? (laughs) And I know you mentioned like uh, in your book, like, um, you know, you wanted to work like at McDonald's anywhere, but (laughs) in the place that you loved and that you're, you know, you, you served and trained for. And um, you also mentioned, uh, what you called well-intentioned dragons. Um, (laughs) And these are people who might like, as Jesus says, you know, people who would attack the disciples, they might think they're doing God a favor. And so, you know, you might find people who are friends who are hurting you, but they think they're doing the right thing. Um, Can you, I think, can you elaborate a little on these uh, well-intentioned dragons? (laughs) Absolutely. And and I got that term from an author named Martin Shelley, who wrote a book entitled Well-Intentioned Dragons. And really the book is a case study of stories like mine in the church, uh, where pastors get hurt because of a well-intentioned dragon. Now, why do we use the term well-intentioned dragon? Because their intentions, I believe, are good. The the person who opposed me, um, I really believe his intentions were, he thought he was saving the church. Uh, He wanted the church to go back to the way it was. And when you move from 500 to 1500, it's not the same church. And I really think his intentions were good, well-intentioned. However, how he went about it was destructive. So as a result, you have a well-intentioned dragon. And the truth of the matter is, 
we can all fall into that trap at times where maybe our intention is good, but how we go about it actually harms more than it helps. Yeah, it's definitely. And sometimes success, you know, some people see success differently. And I know that you explain in your book how before the cave and after the cave, you might like look at success differently. But yeah, those well-intentioned dragons, you know, you might, they might see like, wait, the the church is growing. It must be, there must be something wrong here. You know, it must be growing for the wrong reasons. And, you know, some churches can do that, you know, Mm -hmm. there's no doubt about it, but you know, it's like people need to take a closer look and to uh, figure out like, are people genuinely getting saved? Are they being faithful coming to church? Are they growing in the Lord and, you know, um, things like that. And so, but can you explain how maybe from how the cave taught you to look at success um, before the cave and then what your understanding of successful ministry is after the cave? (laughs) Well, absolutely. Because that was for me, one of the biggest eye-opening things I learned through this. And, And it took a while to be honest. I had to get all the way through the hurt before I could really process what do I need to change? Mm-hmm. And I remember the biggest thing that I really had to deal with is I had to come to this realization. Up until the cave, I was basing my self-worth on ministry success. Mm-hmm. And ministry success was always defined by numbers. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying numbers are unimportant. However, we can make numbers too important. And that's what I get. In my mind, because I had the largest church in our in our city, the fastest growing church in our denomination, uh, because people were coming to Jesus and all these good things were happening. Suddenly, that's where I got my self-worth. And I had to realize something. I had made ministry an idol in my life. Um, I was more um, focused and committed to ministry success than I was the Lord. I had become a full-time successful pastor, but a part-time follower of Jesus Christ. Mm. And I remember when I lost it all, when, 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 when the ministry was done, I was, I was let go. I was at my lowest point. I felt worthless because I was putting my self-worth in the wrong thing. And, And I remember having to get on my knees and repent and say, God, I cannot make my self-worth based on ministry success. My self-worth must always be based on who I am in Jesus because that never changes. And that was an eye-opening point. And so for me now, ministry success, though I, I still obviously evaluate numbers, the key thing for me is faithfulness. And I yes. think of that verse in scripture where it says the number one requirement of a steward is that they be found faithful. Hmm. And so, yes, growth is good. It exci- it's exciting. Uh, that's a great thing. But the greatest um, success of my life isn't, is my church growing. The greatest success of my life must be, am I being faithful personally to the Lord? That's where my hmm. self-worth has to be. Yes, definitely. And I think, think with that, some of the some of the challenges that happen as a ministry is growing is that it seems that more 
you know, with more people coming in and joining the church, there's probably more of a chance that you'll end up having some people come in who will start to pose challenges too, as well as, yeah, as I mentioned before, some people who will think like, wait, things are changing. Uh, Change is bad. (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) And and that's why it's important that we do focus on the right things. I I heard a preacher say one time, there's always a Judas in your life and they're Mm. usually close enough to kiss you. (laughs) And and there's probably some truth to that. That's why it's so important that we keep focused on the main thing. I think as parents, we assume that kids are going to just know the right way to do things. You have to train them by teaching them to do it over and over again until they actually get it. This is Yvette Hampton, host of the Schoolhouse Rocked podcast. Join us each week for a new episode as we offer encouragement and resources on biblical discipleship from popular speakers and authors, as well as parents just like you and me. Find out more at schoolhouserocked.com or listen anywhere you find your favorite podcast. You brought up uh, Joseph as a a good example of, of someone who, you know, from what we could see at the beginning, you know, he had favor from his father. He was doing the, he was an honest person. He was doing the right thing, but sometimes we experience things from very close friends or family who get envious of our favor. And, you know, especially as you, you as a, a, a pastor of a, you know, a growing church there. And so some people who could be very close to us can, tend to want to figure out how to take us down and get rid of us. And for, um, you know, reasons that, you know, they're not very good. And, you know, and Joseph found himself in what you call the pit of despair in the book. And yeah. And then the challenge that we can also face is, is where close people who have influence can you know, lie about us. Like they did, they killed the, the goat and dipped the uh, coat in the blood and said that Joseph was, was killed to his father that, you know, so that he would forget about him and move on basically, you know, it's like some way to just totally get rid of, uh, you know, someone that they didn't like. And, but what's interesting about, you know, Joseph's story is that, you know, you, you mentioned in the book, how the Lord was with Joseph even when he's in Egypt, even when he becomes a slave, you know, even when he's falsely accused and put in right. prison. And yet through all of this, Joseph would have never become second in command to Pharaoh and had such influence over the whole nation of Israel. If none of this stuff ever happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's so many incredible yeah. principles in that story. You know, and you, you hit on a key one, and that was the thing that motivated his brothers to betray him was mm. envy, envy and jealousy. And again, we have to be careful because we can all fall into the trap mm. of jealousy. And it's interesting because we have two different words, jealousy and envy. Jealousy is when you have something and I wish it were mine. Mm. Envy is when I try to deprive you of it because I can't have it either. In the New Testament, It's the same word for both because jealousy, if left unchecked, always leads to envy. Hmm. And that's what happened in the life of Joseph. And you're right. He gets thrown into the pit. He ends up being falsely accused. He ends up in prison. But if you read through that story, 
I love underlining the phrase you see multiple times, but the Lord was with Joseph, Mm -hmm. but the Lord was with Joseph. And that's what keeps you going when you're in the cave, when you're in the pit, when you're in the prison. And for Joseph, by the way, a lot of people like to say, well, now, you know, for Joseph, God was good. He went from the pit to the palace. Well, yeah, but don't forget, he had to go through years in the prison first. Mm, Sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. (laughs) But it was in prison, learning how to manage the prisoners, that he learned the skills needed that when he becomes second in command in Egypt, he's able to save the entire country, including his own family. And that's the thing that I love about the story of Joseph. It tells me God doesn't waste anything. (laughs) Even the cave experiences in our life, even when we're betrayed, even when we face jealousy, even when we're falsely accused, God doesn't waste anything. It might be part of my story. It's not the end of my story Mm. because God's going to use it. Yes, definitely. And, and you, and then you also talk in the, in a book, you have a chapter called After the Cave. <laughs> and I think about like our attitude toward those who've wronged us because we can often find ourselves, you know, like with a vengeful spirit. But, you know, continuing with the story of Joseph when, um, you know, he's in a position of power <laughs> and his brothers, he, know, he recognizes his brothers and he knows that, you know, what he went through because of his brothers. And yet, sure, he had a little bit of fun with him not knowing who he was, but ultimately, yeah. you know, he revealed himself to his brothers and then they were terrified that he was going to, you know, take off their heads, but yet he expressed love to them. And like, so Pastor Scott, would you um, say that your attitude toward those, you know, like well-intentioned dragons or those who were trying to take you down, although it's hard to, um, you know, feel that love of Christ sometimes to people who were, you know, trying to take you down, but you know, after the cave, what would yeah. you, how would you describe your um, attitude toward them? <laughs> oh man, that's a great question. You know, I, I think the greatest lesson mm-hmm. that I had to learn through this was what is real biblical forgiveness? Mm. That was the great, because here's the problem. The problem is I think all of us in America, all of us, we grew up being taught wrong because mm-hmm. all of us can finish the statement. Forgiveness means you forgive and you forget. We were all taught that. Number one, you can't find that in the Bible. Number two, I don't think it's possible. And if you're going to define forgiveness as forgetting, Mm -hmm. you're never going to forgive. When you look at 1 Corinthians 13, and the Bible says that love keeps no record of wrongs. So when people Mm -hmm. wrong me, love doesn't keep a record. Here's what that means. It means I don't keep a mental record of what you've done against me in order to use it against you as a weapon. Mm -hmm. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness says when I'm tempted to use it against you as a weapon, I'm going to choose not to. Mm -hmm. That's forgiveness. And Mm -hmm. uh, for me, that was uh, crucial because right before I started on this cave experience, my wife was reading a great book by R.T. Kendall called Total Forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Great book. And when this happened, she shared the book with me. And one of the things he says in the book is this. If you keep telling your story over and over to people who don't need to know, 
just to get them on your side, you're going to struggle to forgive. And so my wife and I made the decision that even though everyone in our church was asking us for our side of the story, we made the decision not to give. We made the decision to not share that because we knew that would make it harder for us to be able to forgive. Now, even when I wrote the book, my first rough draft was like three times the size because it had all the stories of how they hurt me. And uh, I took all that out because the reason for the book was not to share, here's how those dirty people hurt me. The reason for the book was to share, here's the principles I learned that I hope can help others get out of the cave. So (laughs) are there times I still am tempted to be angry? Yes. Are there times I'm still tempted to hate? Yes. But like any other temptation, I have to choose not to use that as a weapon. That's what true biblical forgiveness is. Yes, definitely. And thankful to God for that. And that, you know, you know, there is, there is life past the cave and there's, yes. uh, there is ministry and there is uh, success past the cave. And so Pastor Scott, can you like, I remember from your book, you talked about some of the things that you and your wife did when you're in that low point of the cave? Like, so are there, like, can you share with uh, uh, some of the things that helped you get through this cave experience? Absolutely. You know, the the first thing for me was involving my wife. Um, (laughs) That was the first time I I was, I was carrying this basically by myself. Now my wife knew something was up. She knew there were some things, but I didn't share everything I was feeling, trying to protect her. And I'll never forget the day that I finally kind of just backed the the dump truck up and unloaded everything and said, here's what's going on. And that became a turning point for me because, you know, the Bible says when you're married, you become one flesh. Mm -hmm. Uh, The best way I know to describe that is it's like you become a two headed monster, right? (laughs) You do this thing called life together. And that's what got me through. I was able to do this thing called the cave with my wife. And that was very helpful. Now, I knew at that point, there came a point where I knew I needed more help than that. It's when I had my first panic attack. I'd heard other people talk about that. I had never had one, but when I had one, it scared me. And that's when I realized I I need some other help. And God led me to a wonderful pastoral Christian counselor who helped me in my thinking, because that's where things go awry when you're in the cave. Your thoughts go all over the place. He helped me with that. But my wife and I, there, there, were, there were two things that really helped us. The first one was this. We said, we need to pray specifically. And here's what we meant by that. There were two prayers that we prayed every day. The one prayer was this. God, when this is over, whenever that is, whatever it looks like, our prayer is that we will be more in love with Jesus than we are today. More in love with each other than we are today and more in love with the local church than we are today. Because I've watched pastors go through this and abandon one, two, or all three of those. And every day we prayed that specific prayer. And I can tell you now, 12 years removed, by the grace of God, I'm more in love with Jesus than I, than I was back then. I'm more in love with my wife than I was back then. And even though the greatest hurt of my life came in the local church, I'm more in love with the local church today than I've ever been. The other thing we prayed specifically was this. God, please don't let us both be down 
at the same time. Because <laughs> uh, as you go through this, you have good days and bad days. You have good hours and bad hours. Mm-hmm. And we just pray, God, please don't let us both be down at the same time. So when one of us is down, the other can help pick us up. Mm-hmm. And God honored that prayer. And we saw that. So that was another thing we did. But the other thing, we, we started something we did each night. And we would um, get a cup of coffee. We'd go sit on the back porch. And we would answer this question. How did we see the fingerprints of God today? And what I mean by that is this. I'm not talking about anything mystical. I just mean, how did we see God doing something in our life? No matter how small, they gave us confidence. He was in control. And even though we were hurting, we could trust him. Even though we were scared, we could trust him. And every day that we kept a journal of them. Every day we wrote down the fingerprints. I remember some days they were huge palm prints. Other days they were little things. I remember one night we sat there and we couldn't think of one. And it was the first time we, we could not think of one. And as we're thinking about this, there's a knock at the door. I go to the door and there's a pastor from across town. And it was a pastor I had. I knew who he was, but we had never met or talked before. And he said, Scott, I heard what happened to you. And I just felt like God wanted me to come over here and just, can I just have two minutes to pray with you? Then I'll be on my way. And we're like, okay, that's a pretty good fingerprint right there, you know? (laughs) But those practices helped us to stay focused during that time in the cave. So getting help was one. Praying specifically was another. Looking for the fingerprints of God was a third one. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Like a good example from the life of Elijah is when he's at the the brook Tareth, and it's like, you know, as when we're in ministry, you're expecting clear leading all the time, and as you said, looking for the fingerprints of God, Elijah might, you know, he's like, where are the fingerprints? <laughs> but the fingerprint came, you know, when the brook dried up, you know, yeah. so it's like. Those are the times, you know, that try men's souls, the times, the cave that where it's like, yeah, you're, you know, you're, you're looking, God, where is your direction? And then God will direct you once everything's gone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly right. But there's always fingerprints there. There, yes. there really is. If you just take time to look, you can always see the fingerprints of God yeah. again. That tells me, even though I'm scared, even though my questions are unanswered, even though I'm hurting, he's in control, I can trust him. And by the way, that's the definition of peace. Peace is not the absence of conflict, the absence of fear, the absence of pain, the absence of sorrow. Peace is knowing that in the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the fear, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the sorrow, my God is in control. And I can trust him. That's peace. Yeah, definitely. And I like this quote from your book, which kind of sums up, I think, the thrust of your book. I think it's on the it's on the back cover, too. You said that God does not comfort us to make us comfortable. He comforts us to make us comforters. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. You know, Second Corinthians 1 is a great passage that tells us that God is the God of all comfort Mm -hmm. who comforts us in our trials so that we can comfort those who Mm -hmm. go through the same trial. Mm -hmm. The word comfort, by the way, means come alongside. 
He comes alongside in our trials so we can come alongside of others. God doesn't comfort us to make us comfortable. Hmm. He comforts us to make us comforters. And one of the things that through my cave experience that, that God did is he opened up a whole new realm of ministry because he gave me a heart for hurting pastors, yeah. uh, people who are in misery, and really not just, you know, even non-pastors can find themselves in the cave um, when, when you go through betrayal and hurt. Yeah. And it's been such a blessing to be able to have pastors call me because they've read the book and they're going through it and to be able to talk with them and pray with them and give them encouragement and share principles with them. Nobody can bring you comfort like someone who's experienced what you're going through. That's what second Corinthians one is teaching. So I had to sit back and go, listen, there is a beauty in brokenness. And and so I went through brokenness during this time, but there's a beauty in it. I learned more about God during my time of brokenness than I ever learned when things are going good. I learned more about the things I needed to change Mm -hmm. and God opened up a whole new realm of ministry. I think about, um, and I think I put this in the book. I, I heard a pastor one time say that if you look at every time Jesus distributed bread, feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, the last supper, he always used the same formula. He took the bread. He blessed the bread. He broke the bread. He gave the bread. And this pastor said, I think that's how God works with people. He takes us, he blesses us, but there comes a time in our life. He'll allow us to be broken. Why? so that he can give us a fresh and a new. And I think that's one of the beauties of brokenness and pain. God can use it not to make you comfortable, but to make you a comforter. And I hope, I pray, that's what this book is doing in the lives of people. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. It's a great thought about the uh, breaking the bread and and, and seeing how, you know, through the trials God can, you know, make us be a blessing to others, to feed others like that. And so coming to the uh, end of this episode, uh, Pastor Scott, is there, there any uh, other closing thoughts that you'd like to leave us or, you know, how, how would people get a hold of you and, you know, what some, some uh, contact info uh, where they can find your book and, and your church and, and things like that. Yeah, well, let let me first kind of just end with this thought, because I think it's the key thought. And that's this. The cave may be part of your story, but it doesn't have to be the end of your story. Oh, yes. Uh, The God will use that cave experience in your life if you let him. And that's really what the book is all about. Helping people to come out of the cave and find joy again in serving Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the book really is available anywhere books are sold online. You're not going to find it in any local bookstore, uh, mm-hmm. but anywhere books are found online, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. You can find the book, The Cave, When Ministry Becomes Misery by Scott Disler. And as far as contacting me, and I, I love that, especially if there's someone out there who's in the cave right now, just needs to talk to someone, pray with someone. You can email me And that email is my first name, Scott, last initial D, Scott D, at myefree. Now, let me spell it. That's M-I-E-F-R-E-E dot org. That's my email. And um, you can find me on Facebook as well and and, and do it that way. Or you can just Google 
the E-Free Church of Gaylord, Michigan. And that'll bring up our church website. It's myefree.org. There's, uh, you can contact me through that as well. And um, we, uh, our, our nine o'clock at 1030 service is also live online every single Sunday. If you live anywhere in Northern Michigan, uh, we're on CBS every Sunday morning from eight o'clock to nine o'clock. And uh, so a lot of different avenues. But again, anybody that would need to talk, I, I love doing that. Please feel free. Give me a call. Send me an email. I'd love that. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, uh, Pastor Scott, for um, all that good info. And um, I will provide links to uh, your book, uh, Gaylord Gay E Free Church, and you know, and uh, so that our listeners can check you out. And I, I highly recommend your book. Uh, it's called The Cave. <laughs> oh, it's kind of mirrored there. The Cave when ministry becomes misery. And I've been uh, reading it, and it's 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 a good read. It's definitely uh, it's encouraging. It's well uh, written. It reads like a, a series of um, encouraging sermons. And so, definitely, if you're in ministry, or even if you're not in ministry, um, you can find yourself in these cave situations and. We have a book here, Dr. Uh, Pastor Scott Disler has a book that can help you and guide you through passages and illustrations from the Bible to help you uh, deal with that cave situation and to encourage you that, as you said, the cave is not the end of the story. And so you can get out of that cave and you will be a better person, a better uh, minister of the gospel for that. And so, uh, Pastor Scott Disler, thank you for being a guest here on the Truth Espresso podcast. What a privilege. Thanks for having me. <laughs> And uh, thank you for listening to this episode of Truth Espresso. And stay tuned for um, next week, next Monday, for more Truth Espresso goodness. <laughs>If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.